Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to the IC Interviews. I'm Dave Baxter, the Deputy Personal Finance Editor on the IC, and today I'm joined by two guests. Today we have Lynn Hutchinson, Head of Passives at Charles Stanley, and Bry Laytow, Morningstar's Passive Strategies Analyst. Um, both Lynn and Bry have kindly served this year as panelists on the IC's top 50 ETFs list, something we've been putting the finishing touches on in the last couple of weeks. As we put out our latest list of the best and most interesting ETFs as building blocks for your portfolio, I thought there's no better time to discuss the biggest developments in the industry in the last year or so. From ESG to thematic investments and even the value rally of the last half year or so, there have been some really huge market developments that have fed into the ETF space. So both of you, thank you very much for joining. Um, as I've said, of course, we've had lots going on in the markets, lots of that feeding through into the ETF industry. Um, so I thought first up, it'd be interesting just to put you on the spot and um, ask, you know, what what are the kind of interesting developments you've been seeing in recent months? You know, are there any um, new ETFs that have been catching your eye? Are there any trends that you think investors need to be keeping an eye on themselves? What's been most interesting? Shall I start? Um, So so there's been a number of new themes that have popped up. I think the main drive this year has been around clean energy. And I think that's been for the past 18 months now. Now, we've seen a a new product launched this year from LNG, which is Hydrogen ETF. Mm. Again, it focuses around the whole clean energy hype in the markets. But it's still very early days for Hydrogen. Um, If you look at – so it's really important to look at your theme that you're trying to track and make sure you understand what you're investing in as first and foremost. But with with Hydrogen – theme you know it's still very early days for green hydrogen which is produced using zero emission renewable sources so a lot of the companies within this um, basket hydrogen basket are more focused towards the gray hydrogen so and the purity of the theme is still only 20 to 30 percent of hydrogen so it's still very low uh, it's been popular so the assets have gone up to around 460 million dollars since its launch earlier this year but again um and a lot of the companies involved included in in the basket it's not their main business revenue so look at the theme, look at the index and the methodology and see how much revenue is required to be included in these type of themes. So, again, you know, it, it, it's been really popular, but whether it's the right course of action for your clean energy focus, I'm not so mm-hmm. sure. I, I think that's a really interesting issue, I guess, we've seen elsewhere. So if you if you jump across the pond, you've had the, um, you know, everyone's been talking about ARC in the last year and you've had the, uh, they came out with the kind of space-related ETF and lots of people noted it had things like Netflix in it. And it's almost kind of a, you could argue it's kind of a placeholder until that industry develops. Um, I mean, what, what do you guys think about that, um, I guess, question of kind of whether you invest in these thematic ETFs early? You know, do you do you go in or does it make sense to kind of just let the theme mature a bit more? Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm happy to take that one. Um, I, yeah, I think with the arc, you know, 
an issue that they have uh, issue that they have is a lot of a lot of the cross the cross holdings that that, that that their funds have i think exactly as you said um these teams are very specific um and without over investing into some of these companies you know when when you start talking about inflating the price etc cetera, etc cetera, um companies like netflix are really just placeholders exactly like you said um mm. i think that the more particular you go into a theme, I think this is when you start to worry about portfolio concentration, um, too much money. I mean, I mean, the ARC funds have just so much money behind them. Um, it's just a challenge around managing those flows. Um, and Lynn, you mentioned the clean energy space. That's, um, I suppose that's probably been one of the most controversial areas for ETFs in the last year with the, the iShares fund. Um, it's had some issues with pulling in so much money that it was uh, perhaps owning too much of some of its kind of smaller companies, and then they had to overhaul the index. Um, I guess it's a question for either of you, but are there any kind of key considerations investors need to be thinking about when looking at these clean energy ETFs? Because we, we've seen a few more names come into the space, and now it does seem like there's a decent amount of choice there. Yeah, there's there's lots of choice, and not, and you know they focus around clean energy, but they're not all holding the same equities as well. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the iShares Global Clean Energy now, that was focused more towards the small and mid cap range. It got to such a huge size that it, it couldn't cope with any more inflows, and was pushing the value of the small cap. So now it, it's changed, and the purity was a hundred percent. It's now dropped to around seventy or eighty percent. <laughs> In my view, it's in a better position to take new inflows now. So you've got other um, clean energy ETFs that have recently launched, and they're still more focused towards the small and mid-cap. But as they mature or as more flows come in, these will also have to change their index as well. So we'll see that with a loss of themes that are coming through. That It's still early days for a lot of them, but they will have to mature with the market as well and with the investor flows. So you will see themes and their indices change as times go on. Uh, it's important to realize that these are very volatile as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it's not something like a, an MSCI World market cap ETF uh, where you don't see huge movements, performance movements on a mm-hmm. day-to-day basis. But these, te- these themes tend to have big movements so if your tech's not doing so well in a large cap these will be hit even more because they've got a bit of tech exposure as well to the theme yeah i suppose in one i guess there are two kind of interesting points there one is um some critics might say that there's a lot perhaps a lot more timing involved in some of these thematic names i mean sticking with the iShares um global clean energy fund you know if you'd invested at certain points last year um, you would have done, you're actually still, I think, sitting on quite significant gain. Um, but then a lot of the investors who came in late last year or early this year have had a much more difficult time. Um, and then I guess an, another point you're perhaps alluding to is um, something I've, I've stressed in this year's list is just, it does seem like you have to do so much more due diligence on thematics and it, it doesn't stop. You have to constantly watch to see if, you know, the index is being overhauled or there's some kind of problem happening in that industry no yeah no exactly that i mean it's really this sort of three-staged problem with each sort of level you know effectively requiring fulfillment of the previous level so i mean you've got to make sure that you start with the right theme 
Um, is, is, is this going to be a theme or an idea? It will, I mean, whether it's clean energy or, or robotics or what have you, is this going to be something that's going to persist and be around in the next five to 10 years? After that, then you have to consider whether or not you have the right fund. Is this a fund that's adequately capturing this theme? Um, and then once you've got those two squared away, um, the last thing is finally, is it the right time? Um, is this is this the right time to buy? I mean, exactly like you said, the investors who got in early into those funds you know, are, are still sitting on gains, but perhaps the ones who came to, um, a bit later to the party um, are maybe not so happy today. Yeah. And we've got a, you know, a slew of historic evidence now, you know, whether it's, you know, I suppose the dot-com bubble, you can even look at more modern themes today like Bitcoin, um, robotics, um, yeah. Yeah. But if you look at the I mean, the iShares Clean Energy ETF was a set up around 2007, 2008, and investors only really made a profit at the beginning, around the beginning of 2020. So they sat in, so if you were in an early in that theme, you sat in that theme losing money for, for many years before it became more topical. So these yeah. are the things you have to consider as well when you mention if you're going in too early. Are there any, I suppose, kind of focusing on the um, composition of thematic ETFs, are there any um, key things to look for? And equally, um, are there any kind of providers that have stood out for, you know, having quite a good approach to putting together thematic ETFs? Yeah, so I think the main things to look out for, obviously, are issues around portfolio concentration. It seems to be this 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 trade off between am I adequately capturing a theme versus is my portfolio sound in its construction? Is there adequate diversification? Is it too concentrated or top heavy? Um, I think th- I think that's the main thing in terms of asset prov- in terms of asset managers or, or providers who are, who are, I suppose not- notable. I suppose FunEc might be worth a shout out. They're very much a U.S. house. Um, they specialize in, in, in ETFs and thematics, and uh, and they have a fair range. They seem to strike a good balance here. Um, and yeah, they're looking to gain a foothold in Europe, um, expanding operations this year, I suppose. Yeah, that'll be interesting when they come out. Actually, we don't have any big issues that are specifically focused on on thematics at the moment. Global X came to Europe last year, they've started launching a couple of um, thematics which look interesting. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've seen it across, you know, Han ETFs are also launching some niche products that have a theme attached to it, uh, but n- nothing too specific in terms of individual providers, I'd say, yet. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it'd be interesting to see as more, more products come out and you can... Uh compare the kind of methodologies and how they deal with those funds. Um, I guess one other question on thematics and perhaps really in this, uh, in this chat, I need a kind of big active advocate shouting me down, but um, may, you know, this is one area where selectivity is really important. I mean, is there a strong argument for how, how would you deal with the criticisms? I'm sure there are criticisms that you, you can't do thematics in a kind of passive format. 
I'd say to look at the methodology. So the methodology is really important. It's accessible for most of the ETFs and it gives you a good overview of how much revenue. So if you know, a, a lot of them will look at revenue to themes under 50% of their revenue of the overall company. That's, that's low. So you, you look for something that's got a larger revenue attached to the theme, like the iShares Global Clean Energy has. So that helps to focus where you're looking more at the purity of the theme, I'd say. So another um, you know, really big story in the fund space um, that has fed into the ETF space has, of course, been ESG. Um, can't really get away from talking about ESG lately. Um, it's been, you know, quite a boon for active fund providers. Um, but you know, what kind of, what kind of activity have we seen in the ETF space, say in the last year, the last 18 months or so? Yeah. So, yeah. So, so in terms of ETF fund launches, um, it's been a spectrum of products that have come out. Um, it's, you know, on the lighter end, if you will, it's been ESG screen products, which offer simple exclusions. They keep tracking error to a minimum. And then on the other end, you've got funds that expand on this. Um, their methodologies try to, you know, also offer exclusions, but alongside that, perhaps work towards a goal of, say, a low carbon or low CO2 emissions where, you know, They'll typically rank a universe um, from from best to worst um, in terms of CO two emissions, and they'll exclude, say, the bottom twenty percent. Um, these funds have their place, I suppose, when it comes to invest. Uh, yeah, so these funds have their place um, when it comes to investor demand. Um, if you are trying to keep tracking error to a region, you know, at a minimum, while still ticking the ESG box. Um, the lighter screen products are definitely for you but if but if you don't mind the tracking error and and, and you are looking for, to make a bit more of a you know i suppose a socially conscious allocation then um products like the msei sri range of mm. are definitely for you um yeah we've um uh, this year, I suppose one change we've made in the top 50 ETFs list I've discussed with both of you is we've moved from some of those lighter ESG names. We kind of originally thought of those as perhaps a stepping stone, and we've now moved into the stricter ones using variants of the MSCI SRI um, indices. Um, but yes, it is, I suppose, a thing I've noticed that's quite interesting is you do, you are getting that kind of sometimes quite serious deviation from you know, the, the parent index like the S&P 500 or, or the FTSE. Um, for example, in the US, you you know, sometimes you're moving away from things like the FANG stocks. Um, so I suppose that's kind of quite a big thing to be aware of. Um, but are we, are we, in terms of, I suppose, kind of where providers are going, and I don't know if you have any kind of um, ideas of demand as well, but are we seeing people showing more interest in those kind of stricter ESG funds versus the, you know, what we might call the lighter options. Yeah. Yeah. So people are definitely becoming, I suppose, more cognizant of the ESG screen funds. I think they sound great on paper, but over time people have realized that yes, while tracking errors at a minimum, if I look at ESG metrics for my portfolio, um, they're not necessarily improved. I mean, I mean, we have a slew of, um, ESG ratings at Morningstar, but but whether you use ours or whether you use, say, MSCI's or whoever, you know, sometimes it's not clear that that your ESG profile 
has improved. If you if you go from say an S and P five hundred to say an S and P five hundred ESG or or ESG screened, um, and I think when investors have to explain to their end clients sometimes, you know, yes, you've invested in this, but you know, in terms of real material outcome, there hasn't been too much of a change. Then perhaps they can raise question marks, and and that's and that's perhaps where a deeper you know dive into ESG is needed. Um, I think. It also depends on which region you're in. So I think if you take a if you take a U, it, yeah, so if you take a US equity index and you look at its ESG metrics and you apply an ESG methodology to it, you're going to see a lot less of an improvement than if you did the same thing in emerging markets, for example, where with emerging markets you're probably starting at a lower bar in terms of ESG profile. Um, and then you know the bang for your buck that you get in terms of adding an ESG screen or a methodology or something or what have you, you know, it goes a lot further in terms of turning around your profile, um, whether that's CO2 output or governance. Yeah. What, what are the, I mean, are there any other regions as well where you would say going down the ESG route is making a bigger difference? I would say that those are, the two ends of the spectrum, really. I mean, within that, mm. you can go, you can talk about developed markets versus emerging. Then you can go, you know, from say US to say China. Then from that, you can go to maybe, you know, Europe versus LATAM or India. Um, I suppose one interesting market for ESG, and you're seeing a few more options in terms of ETFs now, is is the the UK, um, given the composition of of the market. Um, one point I was going to raise that you see in the UK. Um, some of those UK funds is you do still sometimes get some names that perhaps you wouldn't, you know, an ESG lover wouldn't necessarily expect in there, like Rio Tinto, for example. And then if you go over to some of those US funds, um, it's been noted that um, Tesla is um, kind of in the top 10, which some might question. Is, is that just a kind of a problem that we can't get away from um, in terms of those stocks going into the methodology or, or do you expect kind of further evolution there? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So you can find, you know, some quote unquote shockers in these, um, especially when you think of these as ESG funds, you know, why is Rio Tinto in my portfolio? But I think <laughs> it's worth going back to the building blocks of these method- methodologies to remember that while they try to add these ESG screens or filters or methodologies, what they do try to do is limit active risk when it comes to sector bets. So they try to stay as sector neutral as possible. So a lot of these methodologies, the wording is, you know, we we, we aim to exclude the bottom 50% or we aim to invest in the top 25% per sector. So they want to keep the sector weights the same. And so what ends up happening is they will still be investing in, you know, CO2 intensive industries, whether it's energy or utilities or industrials, but they will be investing in the best, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So even if some might call it the best of a bad bunch, it's kind of choosing those top names. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I mean, if you do want a product that, sorry, if you do want a product that, um, absolutely excludes those i guess this is where we start to have the conversation of active versus passive but when it comes to esg yeah yeah and also sri because sri delves deeper into it as well less focus on the sector neutrality as well yeah yeah i personally think the european markets become too saturated with esg products i i think it as as an investor um they're very confusing. Um, I 
I believe you, you need to delve deeper into the methodology, into the fact sheets. Uh, I just feel there's too many. You know, if um, Amundi do end up, you know, acquiring Lixor, then Lixor and Amundi are quite big in the ESG provider products and what's going to happen there we've got duplicates so there's going to be closures maybe so investors are actually going to be you know left sitting with cgt losses or gains having to move into different products i, I just think it, it it's become too saturated european market I, th I think uk investors are less concerned over esg than european investors as well so while the market's much bigger for esg in europe uh, the uk is less so it is moving more towards that structure but it's less so and there's just too many products available i suppose another on the other side of that a big criticism of esg is that you know everyone's got very excited about it and they like talking about it it's very interesting but is the demand actually there like are we, are we seeing kind of demand to match all of this proliferation of different variants of products i think in terms of flow certainly um i think when it comes to you know is this something that's coming from the industry or is this something that's organic and client-led um i think it goes both ways i think we hear conflicting rhetoric sometimes from asset managers that was that you know yes we're seeing huge demand for our products but also you know there's definitely that the you know, there's a need for investor education. This is the term that gets thrown around, investor education. And for me, that stands as a bit of a, you know, it's either one or the other type thing. Is this organic or is it not? Or is it not? But but, but, but it definitely has been the, the support in terms of flows. Um, I think as, you know, regulation begins to lead the discussion, you know, we were talking about... Um, SFDR, um, I, I, I think I think that can also help to you know push the path of least resistance in favour of ESG products. Um, well, what's going think, on? With... Uh, sorry, come. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, I absolutely echo those thoughts when it comes to product saturation. Um, I think over the last year or two, we started off with the light touch products being a bit more. Um, favorable and then we sort of started to see it within the last year this sort of arms race to these low carbon products um whether it's ubs or extract is coming out with their own versions of of the msci sri products and um and then that's where we are today and and i, I guess what's the question mark going forward if we've talked about the governance uh, aspects you know if we've talked about the environmental aspects when it comes to low carbon or perhaps climate change oriented funds i suppose it's the s that's going to be perhaps next. I mean, this is speculation, but um, I would imagine that there's going to be an increased focus going forward on how companies and uh, on how companies interact with the, you know, with the societies that they operate in, uh, how do they treat their employees? Because I'm sure that these things are also a uh, business risks that, you know, I think the passive space still needs to address. I think the act, I, I think this is where passive is perhaps behind active, um, as, you know, as far as broad ESG goes, um, considering the business risk around the S in ESG. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose you also have the classic criticism of um, around engagement and um, where the kind of passive firms are um, voting and, you know, putting pressure on companies and that kind of thing. And you, you can't really, mm. can't really exclude, well, you can to an extent, but 
you can't exclude things in a way an active fund manager can. So I, I think the issue with the engagement for, for passives is this. Yes, passive managers or you know passive product providers can aggregate their shares and vote how they wish to. But at the end of the day, because it's a index-oriented strategy, are you going to divest if if uh, you know a company you engage with doesn't necessarily you know follow through or agree? No, you can't because it's it's passive. I think I think as far as engagement goes, it's definitely active managers who have more scope to vote with their feet. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, yeah, I, I think that's something to bear in mind. And you you mentioned um, SFDR. I mean, for for people who aren't aware, what kind of what is that, and what impact might that have? Sure. So SFDR, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations. You know, in a nutshell, this is and this is increased disclosure requirements for funds domiciled in in Europe. Um, this will mainly focus around what they call principal adverse impacts or you know f- features of an investment that are set to have an adverse impact on i suppose the climate if you will you know uh, th- 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 this could be information around co2 outputs of of your end portfolio you know water usage um i it, in terms of a regulatory headache i think a lot of asset managers were already moving this way i think i think the demand for it was already sort of coming before the regulations came in um, I think it's going to help investors who are quite serious about uh, about their own or their clients' um, ESG requirements to to differentiate between funds. And I mean, the ultimate. I mean, you have to take a step back and look at the the ultimate philosophy of these kinds of regulations. You know, I suppose they're quite clear in their assumptions that you know there is a larger threat to the climate. We are going to act on this and what we're going to do is we're going to use financial markets to effectively reward or punish certain companies by you know using regulation to aid capital flows to them or away from them yeah so another another push perhaps towards yeah yeah sfdr is just another yes your step in that direction yes and moving on from esg um i suppose there's some kind of interesting other new developments in the space um one thing that's been talked about a bit this year again uh influenced by arc and the kind of long shadow of kathy wood is um the idea of active etfs i mean that's pretty that's pretty nascent thing in the uk um and we don't yet have kind of um the ability of etfs in europe to um i suppose go only semi-transparent in terms of what they disclose um do you guys think active ETFs are a thing coming to to the UK and to Europe? Uh, within Europe, investors tend to prefer the fund structure of an active fund over an mm. ETF. And partly this has been because within Europe, some funds are still paying commission, whereas we don't have that in the UK. So they tend to, you know, keep keep investing in those funds. For for the US, the active funds have become very popular, but they've got a different structure to their ETF wrapper, which is more tax efficient than their mutual fund structure. So you've seen a lot more focus towards that. You've also seen a lot of the larger um, institutional providers of these funds switching from mutual funds into active ETFs because of the tax structure as well. So not only have we seen it 
more popular because the, there's been new issues out like ARC. We're also seeing it more popular because existing issuers of mutual funds are moving towards that way, which is less likely to be so in, in, in Europe. I think we will see more active funds. In had ETFs launched one today. Um, on carbon. So I think it is something we'll see, but probably not as quickly as what we've seen the development in the US. I suppose at the minute you have the difficulty that ETFs here still have to do significant disclosure of their holdings, which active managers aren't always particularly keen on. Mm-hmm. I mean, would it would yeah. it really... Sorry, go on. No, sorry, I was just going to say that, that yeah, I, I would absolutely echo those thoughts there. I, uh, and... As you said, I think that you know the disclosure is too much of a headwind. Um, I, yeah, I could. I, I suppose what I could see, you know, as a workaround is you've had these fund launches from the likes of J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, who are sort of late entrants into the ETF game. They've come in and they've seen a saturated market, and what they decided to do is find a way to leverage their their active specialties and and create. Uh, and create what are effectively called research enhanced products. So JPM called theirs a research enhanced, and I think Goldman Sachs called this active beta. But effectively what it is, is it's a factor portfolio where one of the factors is an active analyst input, which which helps to dictate weightings. And I suppose that's one way to try and leverage their active specialty, but with the benefits of an ETF wrapper. But beyond that, you know, with respect to, a, you know, Seeing a fully fledged active ETF in Europe, I think it'll be hard. I think, yeah, I think there are a lot of headwinds. Mm, and I do, I guess I do find myself asking whether it would be that big a deal for UK investors. I mean, I guess the main, the main issue I can actually think of is it might just make ETF due diligence a bit more cons, um, confusing because you're then having this kind of, you know, generally people view ETFs as a kind of passive or smart beta only kind of option. Does it does it just kind of muddy the waters? Yeah, I would imagine so. I think I think it would be probably like a path of least resistance type thing again. Um mm. where, you know why don't I just stick with open ended? Um if I am going to go with exchange traded, you know, let me stick to what I know, especially in the UK where there's a preference for investment trusts if you are going to play around with exchange traded products. Um I mean, there's definitely benefits for an ETF wrapper over a mutual fund. Right. You you can trade on the secondary market and therefore the trading spreads, the bid and often spreads can be much narrower, mm-hmm. particularly if you're buying a UK equity um, ETF wrapper versus a mutual fund ETF fund, uh, an equity fund. So with an equity where you're paying the 0.5 stamp duty for UK equities, in the in the fund structure, you'll always pay that. So your spreads can be 60 to 80 bips wide. Uh, for an ETF tracking UK equities, whether it's active or whether it's passive, the spreads can be between 5 and 10 bips. So if, there are advantages for the ETF wrapper over the fund wrapper. It would, would just, you know, a lot further behind than the US in Europe on this, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like they're much further ahead than us. Mm. Um, and um, I suppose one last thing is just um, we've talked about active, but there is also the so-called smart beta, focusing on factors like value. Um, and those funds have perhaps become a bit more topical given the uh, – we've seen 
bit of a market rotation going on since the vaccine news of November. Um, but I suppose what's interesting as well is we've actually seen a bit of a contraction of that space. So Vanguard um, did have four factor ETFs, um, one of which was on our top 50 ETFs list last year. Um, of course, we've forced to change that because they then closed the range earlier this year. Um, do we, I mean, do we think kind of smart beta products are are going to last? Are they kind of dwindling as people focus on, you know, pure passives and thematics and all that kind of thing? Or is there is there a future for them still? I think there's a future for them. I think some could be um, updated. So particularly mm. for a dividend factor. ETF. Now, a lot of them are still focusing more on equities that are so selection of equities that are just paying a high dividend. Now, we've seen this run into problems last year uh, when companies were either suspending or stopping their dividends. And these high dividend distribution ETFs that people that investors had invested in for specifically the dividend dropped by maybe three or four percent annual yields over the year. So you know, if you if you're looking for anything factor, again, do your due diligence, look into exactly what they're looking for. There are dividend ETFs there that look fundamentals, so uh, so more of a quality push. And then there's also dividend ETFs, so the spider aristocrats that say they're focusing on quality, but they've got a long spectrum of where companies need to pay dividends for consistently 20 years. So in that respect, you're losing out on some of the newer issued um, companies like tech. So you'll have a lower position in, in your tech sector and maybe a much higher position in financials and utilities. So you'll be tilted towards different sectors as well. So again, it's about doing your due diligence and making sure it's it's what you're expecting to see from that from that smart beta or factor range. Yeah. And then I think, yeah, I mean, interesting note on Vanguard, you know, we spoke to them earlier this year and when they shut their range, um, you know, of the four funds, it was actually, it was actually the value on the, um, the best. I think it closed at over 150 million and the other three were sort of under a hundred. So for them, it was a question of scale. And I think sometimes, you know, with the question of, of, you know, a continuity of of strategic beta funds and whether or not they're still relevant. I, th- I think I think a lot of asset managers, when it comes to their closures, they're really looking at scale. Um, I think one of the headwinds for strategic beta sometimes is the methodology. Um, I think sometimes investors can have a hard time actually understanding what goes on under the hood of uh, what goes on under the hood um, of these funds. I think sometimes it can be a bit of a black box approach, um, especially when you're combining, you know, multiple factors like a multi-factor strategy. Um, it's not clear when and how these factors interact. Are they washing each other out? Is it dynamic? How does the optimizer work? I think that can sometimes, you know, work against the popularity of these funds. I also think sometimes, you know, f- for single factor funds, surprisingly, they can sometimes not be the best way to gain exposure to these factors. I mean, take for example, like a typical, I don't know, a value factor of ETF. Um, you'd be surprised how some of these index providers work. I mean, I mean, take MSCI. They will take the entire universe. They will give every stock a price to book. 
um, and they will cut it in half literally and say the bottom half of that is what we call value and that's what will go into the value in, in value index and so unless an investor looks into the methodology and and scours through the finer details they won't necessarily necessarily realize that actually this probably isn't the best way maybe i should be looking at a evaluated alternative instead um mm. and i think these are some of the challenges that face strategic better at the moment yeah one sorry Liam, go on. I, I was just gonna say on the issue with van gogh closing this I, I i feel that part of the reason that they close is they're not very they were active etfs but they're not very active in marketing their products vanguard i'd say in europe so there's they've been very sleepy in terms of marketing their products and that's been one of the reasons maybe that they um haven't had much aum in them they tend to be more focused towards the ifa market and they do a lot of education towards towards that market but in general you know you don't see lots of um advertisements for vanguard funds and what they're trying to do unlike iShares and um a couple of the others that that do put out weekly um information on their funds and spider is another one so i think they've been quite sleepy which has been part of the problem <laughs> maybe they're busy eating the um multi-asset market with their life strategy range maybe they are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so lots to think about there um, but for now, we're unfortunately out of time. Um, huge thanks to both of my guests, um, both for coming on today and for your help with the top 50 ETF list. Um, please do check our latest list in the magazine of the 9th of July or online. Um, we'll also soon be publishing a piece looking at the thematic ETFs that excited our panel the most this year and keeping up all our regular coverage of the big issues in the ETF space. Uh, thank you very much for listening and take care.